morning. Am I on? Good morning, Three Lakes Evangelical. Oh, that was a wimpy good morning. Good morning. Hey, now we're here. We're going to invite you to come on in if you're in the back yet. And we're going to stand up and start this morning with some worship. Kind of wake up a little bit. (laughs) Excellent.
See you.
to gather together this morning. We have to praise and worship and celebrate the God who has all things for our God, who knows the ending from before the beginning. So it's a joy to come with you, be here with you, and worship that God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We are glad that you're here with us. It's a joy for me to be back after being gone last week. It's just good to be back with you all here in this place, now worshiping together. If you are new and you'd like to kind of introduce yourself to the church, there's a, a Connect card on the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out and... Um, provide any information you want to provide with us. and um, You can drop those in the boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where tithes and offering can be placed if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as part of God's kingdom advancement here in Three Lakes. <clears throat> a couple of announcements to bring to your attention. So today, after the Sunday school hour, we will have a a soup lunch downstairs that we invite all of you to, to be a part of and to um, yeah, partake in just as a way to enjoy time together and to um, yeah, fellowship with one another. Also this morning we have Noah and Jill Ellenwood here with us. Um, so a couple weeks ago we had Mel and Amy Ellenwood with us. Now we have Noah and Jill. They're missionaries in Montenegro. So right after the service, Eric Gustafson is going to lead a time of prayer uh, over in that wing, or right over there where he's sitting now. Um, so if you want to be with them, pray with them, talk to them, hear a little bit about their ministry, and be part of praying for them, I'd invite you to join them over there right after the service. <clears throat> Along with praying for them, today is also a day of prayer for the persecuted church generally, so we're going to pray for that in a minute, um, and just pray together. So would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we, we're so thankful for this place that we can gather together as your people for the freedom and the opportunity we have to do that. And we, we pray this morning, especially for those throughout the world who don't have that, that same kind of freedom, who are, who are persecuted for their faith, who are worshiping you in underground and secretive ways, worshiping you in some level of fear over possible persecution they may face for their faith. And so we pray as Christians this morning throughout the world gather that you would give those who face persecution boldness, that you would give them safety, that you would give them conviction to stand for their faith in the midst of trials and challenges. But we also pray that some of those same governments that persecute Christians are also harsh and persecute those of other faiths, other backgrounds, other nationalities that don't align with the, the national norm. And so we pray that you would be with 
people throughout the world who are persecuted generally, that your justice would be done, that people who are facing persecution because of their ethnicity or their race or their religious conviction, no matter what it may be, that you would be with them. You would give them endurance and safety. Father, we pray as well for this coming week and election coming and pray that you would give us confidence that your word clearly says that all authority is appointed by you. We pray that your will would be done in and through these elections and no matter the outcomes that we would trust your sovereign care in ruling over the rulers. No matter who's in power, you are ultimately king. But to live in confidence of that fact, that as we just sang, that no matter how bleak things may seem, no matter what trials they may face, no matter how corrupt certain leaders may seem, that you have all things worked out, that you have a plan for goodness and your glory to be seen throughout the world, and that there is coming a day when all wrongs will be set right. Father, help us to not find our hope in earthly government, but help us to find our hope in Jesus. And about to live in light of that great and glorious hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you stand as we continue to sing this morning? I'm going to sing a couple more songs about God's mercy and His grace.
we thank you that there is nothing your grace can't carry us through. Nothing we can do to cut ourselves off from your grace. There's nothing we can go through that you cannot handle. And your grace will not sustain us through. Thank you that we have that grace available to us in Jesus. But our worship of you reflect our thankfulness. Praise God in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in December of 1999, just as the, as the 1900s were coming to a close, Sports Illustrated created a list of what they called the top 100 most iconic sports moments of the 1900s. The top most iconic moments of the 20th century. And the top spot on that list was the miracle on ice. In case you're not familiar, the, the miracle on ice was the nickname given to the hockey game between the United States and the heavily favored Soviet Union hockey team at the 1980 Olympics. In the closing seconds of that game, Al Michaels had the famous call in which he asked the question, do you believe in miracles? Because it felt almost miraculous, right, that the United States would, would win that game. The Soviet Union had won the previous four gold medals at the Olympics. Largely, that was thanks to the fact that like, the Soviet Union used professional players while the United States only allowed college players to compete. In an exhibition game shortly before these Olympics, the same Soviet Union and the same American team played a game, and the Soviet Union team won 10-3. to like, So no one had much hope for the Americans heading into that game. And yet somehow the Americans prevailed 4-3. to And like growing up as a sports fan, like somehow that game can enter my awareness at some point. Like, I'm not sure how or when or why I became aware of it. Like, I was like, never much of a hockey fan. Like, this game happened six years before I was born. Right? But like, somehow like, this game just kind of entered my consciousness. Right? Like, I can't remember a time that I wasn't familiar with this game. I can't remember a time when I couldn't hear Al Michaels asking me if I believe in miracles in my head. Right? But I'm really only familiar with the kind of the broad stroke to the story, like this underdog American team defeating the overpowered Soviet team. It wasn't until I saw the movie Miracle, which, which came out in 2004, that I like, learned more of the details behind this game. And the thing that shocked me the most watching that movie was to realize that this, the Miracle on Ice game, was not the gold medal game. That... The Americans didn't win a gold medal by winning that game. In fact, they had to play Finland in the gold medal game a couple days later. And in that gold medal game against Finland, the United States was down 2-1 to one after the second period. In the locker room between the second and third periods, the United States coach looked at his players and he said to them, if you lose this game, you will take it to your graves. He had some more colorful language in there that I edited out, but like, that was the gist. And the United States then went on to score three goals in the second period to win that game four to two. But just, if they had lost like, that gold medal game, that would have been a, just a stunning turn of events. 
to go from the absolute high of beating the Soviet Union to the low of losing to Finland and blowing a chance at a gold medal, which would have been, would have been crushing. Right? I was thinking about that story this week and how the United States was down in the gold medal game after that upset victory. I think about that this week as I read the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. The last week, Pastor Ian preached from, from 1 Kings 18, and like in that chapter, we see one of the great victories in all the Bible. Elijah, by himself, goes up against 450 prophets of Baal and wins this decisive, dramatic victory by calling down fire from heaven. And he's able to do that because he serves the true and living God while the prophets of Baal serve a false god. So Elijah, in that chapter, had, had just seen this absolutely incredible, mighty power of God. And then we're told that that power of God comes on him and he's able to run ahead, run faster than chariots, so that he beats Ahab back to Jezreel. So just think like what Elijah had to be feeling in that moment. To know that his God answered his prayer and sent down fire from heaven. To know that his God gave him superhuman speed to run, outrun horses over a long distance. He must have felt so invigorated. He had to be having like one of the genuinely high points of human history. To have just witnessed and experienced all of that. Which is what makes 1 Kings 19 so flabbergasting. Right, if, if 1 Kings 18 is the United States beating the Soviet Union, right, then 1 Kings 19 is if the U.S. had gone on to lose to Finland. Elijah go from the highest of highs to utter despair in a matter of a couple of verses. Just look at how 1 Kings 18 ends and then 19 starts. So here's the end of, of chapter 18. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And now here's the start of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel, so Jezebel is Ahab's wife and the one who introduced Baal worship to Israel. So Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He just ran in the power of the Lord of this great long distance back to Jezreel. Now he takes off running for his life. He goes from running in the power of the Lord to running in fear in a matter of four verses. Like he had just seen God work in mighty and miraculous ways. And he gets one threat from Jezebel and he, he takes off running, afraid for his life. Okay. What's interesting, right, that up until this point in the book of 1 Kings, every other time we've seen Elijah move a long distance, it's always been at the Lord's command. Right? So for example, in chapter 17, verses 2 through 5, we read, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. Elijah moved in response to the word of the Lord. Likewise, in verses 8 through 10 of 17, 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. And again at the start of 18, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. So he's always moving in response to God's command. But here, he flees. He runs of his own volition. He lost his trust in God in the matter of three verses. He was afraid and he ran for his life. And so, I just want to say this, in light of that. If you're here, maybe you've experienced the power of God working in your life at some point in the past. But now you've maybe wandered away. Maybe you feel like you've lost some connection with God. Or maybe you're, you're embarrassed that like, despite God's work in your life, you don't always trust Him as quickly as you should. You don't always obey Him as well as you should. If that's, if that's you, if you're wrestling with guilt over the way your, your fears have caused you to neglect God, I just want you to understand, right? You're in good company. This is Elijah. He's one of the most important figures in the Old Testament. This is Elijah who who God used to stop rain from falling. This is Elijah who God used to provide never-ending flour and oil for a widow. This is Elijah who God used to raise a boy from the dead and call down fire from heaven. And yet he gives in and he turns and runs. If he can experience that momentary failure, then don't feel guilt or shame if you've experienced the same thing. In fact, throughout this chapter, throughout 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah fail on three separate occasions. But each time he fails, God sticks with him. And God shows him grace in the midst of his failure. Like if many of you probably know, like our son's name is Elijah. And then he, he grows up and he wants to know why we named him what he did. Maybe we'll tell him something about Elijah in the Bible. My hope is that it's this part of Elijah's story that stands out more than any other part of Elijah's story to him. Because this chapter is a beautiful picture of, of how God's grace does not give up on us when we fail. Like, yeah, it's cool that Elijah can call on fire from heaven. It's cool that he can do all these things. But what I want my son Elijah and all my kids and everyone to know is that like, God doesn't give up on you when you fail. His grace is still there. That's the more important thing to know. So I think this chapter, chapter 19, is the most important aspect of Elijah's life. This chapter, it's a picture of what Paul would later sum up when he says thousands of years later, like, we are weak, but God's grace is sufficient. The rest of our time this morning, I just want to look at how that reality plays out three times, right, and through what I call three movements in Elijah's life in this chapter alone. I'll continue reading in verse 3. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, 
he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Here, like Elijah giving in to utter despair. Despite all that he has seen God do through him, he receives this one death threat and he runs for his life and he says, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Just end it here. He gives in to despair. Don't Elijah's defense, right? this, this death threat comes from Jezebel, right? who is known to be ruthless and known to follow through on these kind of threats. Right? This is not a hollow threat he's encountering. Right? There's no doubt that her threat was genuine. But it's still, like in, in light of all that Elijah has seen, it's, it's shocking how quickly he turns to despair. But isn't that kind of true of all of us? We can be so quick when things turn against us to become despairing. No matter how, things, how well things were going beforehand, if one thing goes against us, we can so quickly turn to despair. Yesterday we were, we were visiting family in Appleton, and I was, I was out for a run. I was, I was having a good run. I got feeling good. I was happy with how it was going. And I often use my Saturday runs to kind of work through the sermon in my head and work out all the details and think, think it through one last time. So I, but I was doing that, and I was just thinking about Elijah's despair, how quickly he had given in to despair. And like, not, but a few minutes later, it starts pouring on me. Like it had already been raining, but it had like a, a bearable sprinkle. But then all of a sudden, like it, just heavy rain starts pouring down, and it gets windy, and I get cold, and I'm soaking wet, and I'm like three miles from my parents' house. Like, that's all it took, and my brain was in despair mode. Like, this is terrible. Like, like I'm never going to make it home. Like, running is the worst. Like, why do I do this? Like, this is so dumb. Like, I went from having a good, nice run to despair in a matter of a few seconds, like one little rain shower. And obviously, like my, my level of despair in that moment was not the same as Elijah's level of despair here. But after I kind of emerged out of my despair, realized I'm going to be okay. Like I found it ironic how, how quickly my brain went into that kind of despair mode. Right, despite the fact that I had just been thinking about how foolish Elijah's despair was, I still gave in. We are, we are quick to despair. But even in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our woe-is-me attitudes, God is still gracious. Look at how God responds to Elijah here. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. It's interesting here, but that word angel, that's actually the same word, it just means messenger. It's the same word that was used when we heard that Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. It's the same word. We just, when it's from God, we call it an angel, but the word angel just means messenger. So we have a, a battle of messengers here. God's messenger versus Jezebel's messenger. So the angel said, get up and eat. And Elijah looked around 
And there by his head, with some baked, bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water, he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And like, I just find this, this passage to be like such an incredible picture of God's grace. Elijah is running away. He's hiding. He's giving in to fear and despair. He's, he's not trusting God to fight his battle against Jezebel for him. He's running the wrong way. And yet God shows up. Not just shows up, but provides him with food and drink. God waits for Elijah to recover. He comes two times and re- replenishes him. I, just, I love verse 7 especially. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Like, and who hasn't felt that like, at one time or another? Who hasn't felt that whatever journey you're on, whatever event you're walking through, that, that the journey is too much? Like, we've all been there. And here we see this acknowledgement from God, right? That, yeah, in your own power, the challenges of this life are too much for any person. They are too much for you. But the path forward is to get up and eat the sustenance that God in His grace provides. In this case, right, it's, it's physical sustenance that Elijah needs. But Elijah also needs reassurance right, that God is still with him. And God in His grace provides for Elijah's need. It reminds me of what Paul writes to the Philippians. Right? In Philippians 4, he says, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. God in His grace will meet all our needs. Wherever we're at, whatever we need, God will meet all our needs. And despite the fact that Elijah is in need exactly because he ran away from God out of a lack of trust, Despite the fact that he wants to give up and die, God is not ready to give up on him. And God meets his need. God is gracious to him. And Elijah responds to God's grace by eating and drinking the food that God provided. And then he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Oreb. And Mount Oreb is just another name for Mount Sinai. It's important that we understand that because it's important here that we see there's an important parallel between Moses and Elijah. Like Elijah, Moses was one time ready to give in to his despair and die. In Numbers 11, Moses said to God, If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. Moses says that to God. And then God like miraculously provided food and water for Moses in the form of manna from heaven and water for a rock from a rock. And God here miraculously provides food and water for Elijah. Moses wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Elijah travels 40 days. 
Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and now here Elijah arrives at Mount Sinai. So that all sets the scene for something dramatic to happen next. Elijah is at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the, the place where God gave the Ten Commandments. So the question hanging over the text now is, like, what is God going to do this time? We see the answer starting in verse 9. When Elijah arrived at Mount Sinai, the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the God, the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Another parallel of Moses, right? It just says, God passed by Moses as he hid in the cleft of a rock. Now God's going to pass by Elijah. But just notice here in verse 11, the Lord tells Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. That'll be important in a minute. He says right here, go out. Then continuing on. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Do you see the problem there? Like in verse 11, God tells Moses, or God tells Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain. But here, right, it's not until Elijah hears the gentle whisper that he actually obeys. He is, at first, disobedient to God's command to go out and stand on the mountain. Even after God's miraculous provision of bread and water, Elijah is still being disobedient. He was afraid to come out and stand before God. And yet, once again, God does not give up on him. God does not write him off. In verse 14, then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Right, so now Elijah has heard the voice of God, the, heard the whisper. Surely that would change his answer. The second time God has asked Elijah this question, surely that would change the answer. But Elijah replies the exact same way I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet, 
I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So in addition to Elijah's fear of Jezebel's death threat, it seems that one of the things that's causing Elijah to despair is that he feels like he's the only one left who still was faithful to God. He felt utterly alone. There's like three cents, there's no one left two times. And yet, in the midst of his despair and his disobedience, God is once again gracious. God speaks to him in the kind of voice he needs to hear, the, the quiet, gentle, whispering voice. And in that voice, he reassures Elijah that he is not alone. He tells Elijah, there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now God could have said, hey, hey, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Like, you worry about you. Like, you're being disobedient. That's what I'm worried about. Right now. I'm not worried about anybody else. Just worry about you. If I was God, that's what I'd be inclined to say. And I know that because I said it like 4,000 times a day when I was a teacher. Like, like, when you're disobeying, I don't care about anybody else. You worry about you and do your job. That's how, that's how I'd respond, right? But, but God is gracious to Elijah. And instead of saying that, he, he tells Elijah what he needs to hear. God reassured Elijah that there are others, 7,000 others, who have not bent the knee to Baal. I think in addition to our, our human tendency to despair, another thing we tend toward is feeling alone. We feel like we are more alone in our struggle than we really are. Whether we feel like we're the only one standing up for what is right, maybe we feel like we're the, the only one struggling with a certain sin, or we're the only one going through a certain kind of grief, We feel alone. We're inclined to think we're the only one who understands. So if that's you this morning, there's something you're dealing with. There's something you're going through. And you feel like you're all alone in your struggle, whatever that may be. And my hope is that like, this passage would encourage you that you are not alone. That there are likely others going through the exact same thing as you. You may not be aware of them, but you are not alone. And one of the keys to to finding those people who are going through the same thing is to be the first one to be vulnerable and share your struggle. To share that you're feeling a certain way. To share that you're struggling with something. It can be be hard. It can be the first one to to share and be that vulnerable. But in, in doing so, you, you invite others to be emboldened to say, yeah, I, I go through that too. Like I struggle with that too. We are we're made for community. We're made to bear one another's burdens. We're made to walk life alongside one another. And, and what we see from Elijah is that it can be a dangerous place to, to feel all alone. Feeling alone and detached can lead to, to disobedience and bad decisions. But God, in His grace, He, he wants to lead you to, to healing and forgiveness and restoration, right? no matter what you're going through. 
And then having received that, that healing and that restoration, God then wants to send us out on tasks He has given us to do. That's what He does with Elijah here. He reassured them, they tell them, like, so you, Elijah, go and anoint Hazel, a king over Aram, anoint Jehu, a king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. And you would think, like, surely now, like, after all that had just gone down on Mount Sinai, after he receives God's gracious reassurance that he is not, in fact, alone, like, surely now Elijah will be fully obedient. But look at verses 19-21. Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come after you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he sent out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So notice right, that there's, there's no mention of Elijah going to anoint Hazael. There's no mention of Elijah going to anoint Jehu, a king over Israel. He seems to skip those two tasks and go straight to Elisha. And then even when he gets to Elisha, he, he doesn't anoint Elisha as prophet. Instead, he wraps a cloak around him and it takes Elisha on as a servant. Even after all he's experienced... Elijah's obedience is still half-hearted at best. Elijah doesn't even seem particularly concerned about whether Elisha responds. When Elisha, when Elisha says, let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, and then I will come serve you, Elijah's response is, go back. What have I done to you? Like, what do I care what you do? Like, just go back, go ahead. And yet, even in the midst of that half-heartedness, God is still gracious. Elisha still follows after Elijah, and he will become a help and support for Elijah. And he will become the prophet who succeeds Elijah eventually, despite Elijah's half-heartedness. God is still showing grace to Elijah, despite all these failures. That all raises an important question, which is... How and why can God be so gracious to Elijah? Surely God doesn't just choose to overlook or ignore Elijah's sin. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. And to ignore Elijah's sin would be to violate that justice and that righteousness. How can God be so forgiving and merciful towards Elijah's disobedience and despair and half-heartedness? understand the answer to that question, we need to, to fast forward to the next time Elijah stands in a mountain in God's presence. And that takes place in Matthew 17. 
It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is why seeing those parallels between Moses and Elijah are, are so important. Moses and Elijah are, are the two best examples of what prophets were to be in the Old Testament. And yet ultimately they both failed in various ways. Ultimately neither Moses nor Elijah could, could die for the sins of God's people. Only Jesus could do that. As, as important as Moses and as important as Elijah were, they couldn't meet our great need. They couldn't do what Jesus did. That's why God says, I'm at the transfiguration. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then God says that when the disciples look up Moses and Elijah are gone, and only Jesus remains. We like to make heroes out of Old Testament figures, right? like Moses and Elijah. But something they both failed. Neither one of them could do what was needed. Only Jesus is a worthy hero. Like Elijah, right? Jesus would feel despair. Right? When in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prays to God, there's any other way, God, let this cup be taken from me, let me avoid going to the cross. He feels that despair. But unlike Elijah, Jesus does not give in and run away in despair. That he faces his despair head on and he goes to the cross. Like Elijah, Jesus would feel alone. He cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is feeling alone, but unlike Elijah, he is truly alone. Unlike Elijah, he truly is the only righteous person left, or whoever was. That's the only way he could stand in our place. He could stand in the place of all God's people. Only Jesus could take all our sins on himself, because only he was truly righteous. Only Jesus could be treated as if He sinned all our sins. Only He could pay the penalty for our sins. And part of that penalty was being forsaken by God so that He was left utterly and completely alone. Jesus is like the ultimate picture of, of God's grace. He is what makes even God's grace to Elijah possible. And he says, right, that anyone who believes in him can have their sins forgiven. If you're here and you've never believed in Jesus, you've never believed that he lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again for you to be forgiven, you never believed that, then I would urge you to do that. And for those of us who are here who 
trust in Jesus, who have believed in Jesus, then this passage, the, the invitation to, to celebrate that, even when we despair, even when we disobey, even when we are half-hearted in our obedience, God does not write us off. God does not give up on us. God is gracious to us. We should celebrate that grace that's available to us in Jesus. But we shouldn't stop there. Next week we'll we'll see how Elijah used his experiences of God's grace to fuel him to do the hard task that God calls him to do. And our experience of God's grace, as we trust and believe in Jesus, that should do the same thing for us, right? Our experience of God's grace should fuel us to go out into the world to, to do the task that God has called us to do, namely to advance His kingdom by making disciples and by telling other people about Jesus and to live our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to God. But we've got to get the order right. We experience God's grace. We, we know we can't do it on our own first. We acknowledge that we will still fail. We will still need God's forgiveness. We experience God's grace over and over and over again. And then we let that grace and that experience of His grace and mercy to us, we let that fuel us to go live the life He called us to live. Right? We, don't, we don't try to live the life He called us to in order to earn His grace. We experience the grace first and then go and live in light of that grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful that you do not give up on us when we fail, when we despair, when we are disobedient, when we are half-hearted. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough. Your mercy to us is more. As we through saying this morning, like our sins, just like Elijah's sins, are many. But your mercy is more. <clears throat> so we just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, making our experience of that mercy and grace possible. Father, I pray that you would teach us and show us in each of our individual lives what it looks like to go out from here living in response to the grace and mercy you've shown us.
Would we, because of our experience of mercy and grace, be people who delight to extend mercy and point others to your grace? Would we be people who can freely live trusting that our sins are paid for, that there's nothing we can do to add to the work of Jesus, that there's nothing we can do to earn more favor. That we have already received all the grace we will ever need. Would we go living in light of that grace? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here this morning, I'm going to invite you to stick around for the Sunday school hour. There will be a summer discussion here at the parenting class in the room next door. Children's Sunday school downstairs. I should be part of that. And then after the Sunday school hour, stick around for uh, the, the soup lunch. Also, if you want to pray with the Ellenwood, they'll be over there after the service. But as you go from here, wherever God calls you in the week ahead, would you go living out this idea that you have received all the grace you ever need. You would go living out God's call to bring Him glory in light of the fact that He has already forgiven you in Jesus. You are dismissed.
house for 